identified as a novelist who draws on her experiences of growing up in Morocco and living in Suffolk. She talks to Michael Barclay about her love of the cello and we hear part of Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals, The Swan, played on the cello by Sol Gabetta. After attending drama school and making appearances in The Bill and Doctor Who, Esther Freud changed direction at the age of 20 and turned to writing. She found instant success with her first novel, Hideous Kinky, which drew on her experience of living in Morocco as a very young child with her mother and her sister Bella. She was named as one of Granta's best young British novelists and has gone on to write eight more books, the latest being I Couldn't Love You More. We were talking about Suffolk, and you've set two novels there. All your books have a very strong sense of place, don't they? I need something to really hold me to, to a story, and I always want it to be something that feels as if it's my own. And, um, you know, people sometimes tell you a story and say, this would make a good story. And I think, yes, but how can I make that into my story? So setting books in Suffolk, even if the story that I'm telling feels hard to grasp hold of, I think, well, at least I have Suffolk, which I feel is some, I know every blade of grass and every tread of my step and uh, every little lane and bush. So it helps you. I always think when you're writing, there should be things you don't know in order to force you forward through curiosity to find out what's in them and and then something you do know so it's not quite so difficult. Are you, do you think, at heart nomadic or are you attached to the idea of home? Oh, I think I've got a bit of both. I'm quite restless and I like to sort of be on the move but I also have had a lifelong sort of obsession with finding a house that I really love. I used to dream sort of repetitively of, of a white house up on a cliff that was that somehow was just waiting for me. Um, I actually do live in a white house now. And home is very, very important, I think, because we did so much moving around when I was growing up. And even then I used to fantasise about um, a white house, actually. I used to actually pretend that we were about to move into a little white wooden slatted house on the edge of an old abandoned railway line. And I used to write to my grandmother in Ireland and tell her, that we was, you know, close to moving in. But, of course, eventually even she gave up on that fantasy. We're going to end with more music from your favourite instrument, the cello. It's the swan from the Carnival of the Animals by Sassons. I think it was probably the suggestion of your son, who's a passionate musician, isn't he? Uh, does he play the cello? He doesn't. He plays the guitar and the piano, um, but he listens to music all the time, and um, I... I asked him what his favourite piece of classical music was and he played me this and I said, oh, that's, I just love that so much. And again, it's a cello, so can I steal it for my list? I wanted to incorporate something of his because he is so caught up with music. Well, Esther Freud, uh, for him and for you, here is the swan from the Carnival of the Animals and thank you very much. It's unusual to talk so openly about music and life, but I did really enjoy it. So thank you, Michael. It was a real pleasure.
Swan from The Carnival of the Animals by Sassons. We heard Sol Gebeta accompanied by her mother, Irene Timochev Gebeta. I know what you've been hearing I've seen you hide your fear Embarrassed by your weaknesses Afraid to let me near I wish you knew how much I long For you to understand No matter what may happen, child I'll never let go of your hand I know you've been forsaken By all you've known before When you failed their expectations They frowned and closed the door But even if your heart itself Should lose the will to stand No matter what may happen, child I'll never let go of your hand The life that I have given you No one can take away As I've sealed it with my spirit, blood and word Everlasting Father has made his covenant with you, and he's stronger than the world you've seen and heard. So don't you fear to show them all the love I have for you. I'll be with you everywhere in everything you do. If you do it wrong And miss the joy I've planned I'll never Never let go of your hand Let go of your hand 
I'll never let go of your hand Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he continues with the story of God's choice of Moses as leader of the people of Israel. I tried to tell him I wasn't leadership material, that I'm no oratorical prodigy, but how do you argue with him when him is God? The answer is, you don't. So here I am, or rather here we are, because God told me that Aaron, my brother, would speak for me. And that's a mercy. At least the Egyptians and their pharaoh don't have to listen to my babbling stammers. So, as I was saying, here we are, waiting in the antechamber to the hall of audiences, awaiting our turn to address Pharaoh Ramses II. Here I am, little Moses, getting ready to tell the most powerful man on earth that he has to obey someone else and let our people go. Is it only me that sees this as crazy? Ah, yeah, okay, there's the Chamberlain calling us. My heart is thumping like those hammers we hear outside in the construction zones. When we arrived before him, I didn't actually speak to him, but rather to my brother, saying, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. When he did, it became a venomous snake. One bite from this one and you're dead in ten minutes. However, Pharaoh brought in his magicians, and they also did the same thing, turning their staffs into serpents. A slithering, writhing fight erupted between the serpents, and mine swallowed up the others. Pharaoh didn't listen to God's order to let the Hebrew people go. In fact, all we'd accomplished was an entertaining fight between snakes. Soon afterward, the Lord instructed us to meet Pharaoh down at the river to continue our demand that he let the people go to worship him. I said to him, Oh, notice that God is having me speak. Hmm. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this time you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. As Aaron stretched out his staff over the river, the blood-red color spread like a wildfire in the water, and the fish died, giving off a smell of dead and rotting fish. Again, the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court were able to do the same thing with their magic arts, so Pharaoh strolled back to his palace without the slightest interest in us or even his own people. Some days later, I approached him again, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and into your house, and in your bedroom, and into your bed, and in the, into the houses of your servants, and on your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Then Aaron stretched out his staff over the river, and the entire land of Egypt was covered with frogs. But again, the magicians were able to conjure up frogs. This time we had Pharaoh's attention. 
maybe now that it affected him, he took notice. Well, I suppose if you must share your bed with slimy, croaking frogs, it changes your perspective. For the first time, Pharaoh approached me and requested that I pray to the Lord for the removal of the frogs from the land of Egypt. I answered him thus, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? He said, Tomorrow. So I replied to him, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will only be left in the Nile. So I prayed, and the Lord caused the frogs to die. But oh my, what a stench! But Pharaoh went back on his word and did not let our people go. After this plague was finished, the Lord told me to tell Aaron to stretch out the staff and strike the dust of the earth with it. And when he did, all the land of Egypt became thick with gnats. They were everywhere, in their hair, inside their clothing, in their food bowls, in the water, and so thick in the air that they looked like black lace clouds. There was, however, a notable change in Pharaoh this time. When the court magicians tried to do the same thing with their magic, this time, hmm, they couldn't. They approached Pharaoh and said, This is the finger of God. And even though it was obvious that it was from God, he still refused to let our people go. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with this. There have been four miracles to witness to the will of God concerning his people, and we're no further to being freed than when we began. I tried to tell him I wasn't leadership material and that I can't even speak properly. But how do you argue with God? Even after all this, my answer is still, you don't. Maybe next time he'll make the gnats bigger. We'll see.
is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today she has a story about a rabbi and an abbot as an illustration of how to live out our faith. There was a monastery which had fallen on hard times. Its many buildings had been filled with young monks and its big church had resounded with the singing of prayers but now it was all but deserted. People no longer came to be nourished by the prayers and the presence of the monks. Only a handful of old monks shuffled through the cloisters and praised God, but they did it with heavy hearts. Nearby, on the edge of the monastery woods, an old rabbi built a little hut and came occasionally to walk in the woods. Now one day, his heart heavy with the burden of the monastery and the failing of the faith, the abbot decided to visit the rabbi. And so after morning Eucharist, he set out through the woods. As he approached the hut, the rabbi greeted the abbot warmly. Across their differences, there were similarities. Both knew God. Both knew the difficulties of keeping alive the faith in their communities. Both were concerned for the welfare of those they served. The only words that were spoken throughout the whole of the visit were the mysterious words of the rabbi. The Messiah is among you, he said. And he followed this with an instruction You must only repeat this once. And after that, no one must ever say it aloud again. Finally, the abbot and the rabbi exchanged an embrace and the abbot returned to the monastery pondering the words of the rabbi. The Messiah is among you. Whatever could the rabbi mean? Could Christ be that cantankerous brother William? 
Could the Messiah be mean and spiteful brother Stephen? Could the Messiah be the one young novice that they had, petulant and withdrawn, and still to be named? Who could the Messiah be? The abbot pondered this all afternoon and all night. The next morning, the abbot called the few monks together and shared the teaching from the rabbi. You can never repeat this, he said. But the rabbi who walks in the woods says, the Messiah is amongst us. The monks were startled by this revelation. What could it mean, each asked himself. Is dirty and sloppy brother John the Messiah? Is moody father Matthew or crotchety brother Thomas the Messiah? What could this mean? The Messiah is among us. They were deeply puzzled by the rabbi's teaching, but according to the instruction, no one ever mentioned it again. Days and weeks went by. The monks began to treat one another with special reverence and respect. There was a gentle, wholehearted, human yet divine quality about them, which was hard to describe, but suddenly very easy to see. They lived with one another as men who had found something special. They prayed and read scripture as men who were always looking for something. The occasional visitor found themselves deeply moved by the life of these monks. Before long, people became coming, started to come from far and wide to be nourished by the prayer life of the monks. And suddenly, young men began to ask about becoming part of the community. Next week... The lectionary reading will be the 25th chapter of Matthew, where Jesus declares, whatever you do for the least of these, you also do for me. Jesus himself tells us that the Messiah is amongst us. So how might our community, our group of friends, our congregation be impacted if we responded to God's call with the understanding that the Messiah is amongst us. We're told by Christ himself to share our faith, to witness to the truth of the gospel, and that's an important part of discipleship. But the effectiveness of our outreach will always depend on the way that we live our lives. How far what we say measures up to what we do. If our words say one thing but our lives another, then our testimony will always be taken with a pinch of salt. And no matter how much we urge people to judge the message rather than the messenger, we all know that that's not what they do. We've all opened our papers and been confronted by the news that someone who claimed to be a Christian and was well regarded in their church has stolen church funds or abused a child or cheated the inland revenue, or maybe it's closer to home, someone in their street or town who claims to be a Christian is a bad neighbor, is known in the area for spreading gossip, 
And so people say, if this is Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. Don't be put off, we want to tell people. Look at the founder of our faith rather than the practice of some of his followers. Only, of course, as I said, they don't. The actions they can see invariably speak louder than words. We can talk about faith all we like. We can speak of God's love and care for all until we're blue in the face. It will count for nothing if the way that we live puts across a different message. Our faith, James tells us, needs to show itself in the things that we do and the people that we are. Because only then will people stop and take notice. Brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. like